Good morning and welcome to our service here. I greet you in Jesus' name as well. So I've been uh, talking the last while about uh, different um, aspects of the Holy Spirit and what He does for us, to us, in us, um, how that looks. I'm going to continue that this morning. I, uh, I had plans to somewhat uh, wrap this up this morning, but uh, maybe not. might be a little bit more. I'm not sure yet how that's going to go. But um, anyway, I'd like to talk this morning about uh, the place of spiritual gifts, um, how that works. Turn with me to, to Ephesians 2 to get us started here. You know, as we've noticed before... Um, the Holy Spirit is a gift that's given to each believer when that person accepts, well, to use the cliche, accepts Jesus as a Savior. We know that. That's not news. We've pointed that out uh, different times as we've uh, studied this. And uh, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about how our bodies end up being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But there's another dynamic to the... Um, to the uh, work of the Holy Spirit, and I think there's a plausible biblical argument that the Holy Spirit is best expressed when he's able to work through the life of the believer in the context of a brotherhood, such as we have here this morning. I'm going to read uh, just a few verses here in Ephesians 2. Uh, we're going to start at uh, verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter. Now therefore... Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Okay, so there we have this idea that um, uh, we are fellow citizens. You know, we're somewhat of a of a, um, of a of a nation, if you will, if you want to call it that. And then it talks about our foundation in verse 20. And you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now we have the uh, building here that it, uh, it refers to in verse 21. In whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. And now verse 22 is kind of, uh, is kind of what I want to highlight. In whom ye are also built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. I like that verse because it gives the the idea, and I think it's it's well documented through the New Testament, that the Spirit will best express itself when Spirit-filled people come together and they they intermingle. Each one brings his Spirit gift, and the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts. Okay. I really believe that, again, when a person chooses not to engage with a body of believers in a biblical way, his ability to experience fullness of the Spirit is greatly diminished. And I would just like to, to take us back. Last time we talked about Spirit fruit. And if you'll remember with me, um, fruit is given in a, in a singular noun, okay? I think that's right, singular noun, right? So it's fruit, not fruits. It's fruit of the Spirit. And then it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and on it goes. Not the fruits of the Spirit. I take from that, and as you look at, the, at, the, at, that, at that fruit of the Spirit in its context, it would imply that every believer is going to exude that fruit. And that fruit will have these different qualities. It'll be loving. It'll be joyful. It'll be peaceful. It'll have these different... It's kind of like describing an apple. You could say it's red. You could say it's white. You could say it's crunchy. You could say it's sweet. You could say it's tart. But you, you put all that together, and suddenly we have something that's... Um, all those are descriptive, but it's one fruit. And, and so it is with the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's, it's one but it has all these different angles and, and, and characteristics that it expresses. However, in, in the, um, in the uh, context, when the Scripture talks about the gifts of the Spirit, it's always implying that th there's none of us is going to have all the gifts. And as a matter of fact, 
probably most of us are going to be able to muster up one or two or whatever. It, it's just not... It, the, it says the Spirit gives gifts as, as He will, as, it's, you know, as He decides. So that is why in, in a body of believers we have so much more. Because what I lack in a gift, because I'm not given that gift... Uh, you have, and so we can we can um, uh, we end up um, complementing one another and and building each other up and building the kingdom up to so much more of a greater degree. I think there's another thing here that's important to be said here in the outstart of this of this topic here. There's this idea, and I don't know how long it's been around. It's it's I didn't research it, but you hear this sometimes that. There's such a thing as sign gifts, okay? And generally, uh, when you hear this idea of sign gifts, it is it's the idea that there's gifts that the Spirit gives people as a sign that that person has the Spirit. And generally speaking, it is, it is, uh, it is tongues. That's generally what is referred to as sign gifts. Perhaps there's a few others. But I would like to just challenge us. Is is there any biblical basis for that idea whatsoever? And I'm going to ask my question right away. I'm going to say, I have not found it. And I'm going to try to explain to you what I have found. Okay? So, there's, there's in, in, the, in the New Testament, we have four passages that specifically speak to the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to look at all of those, um, those four passages, and we're going to see what we can learn about gifts as we as we study those passages in their context. And and that's the important part because so many times and I'm guilty of it as well, we'll turn to, you know, First Corinthians twelve. You can go there a while because that's where we're going to go next. First Corinthians twelve, that's probably the most referred to um, uh, passage when it talks to uh, talks to the idea of gifts of the Spirit. But what what happens so often is we'll um, We'll go to, um, you know, verses, you know, what, uh, 7 to uh, 10. And we'll just pick that chunk out. And we'll say, well, you know, here's the gifts of the Spirit. And we'll say, you know, here they are and, and whatever. And we don't look at it in its context to see, well, what, what was leading up to this conversation? What comes after it? Can we learn anything about these gifts just by looking at, What's on both sides of these verses? And so we'd like to try to do that um, this morning. So maybe I'll, uh, I'll read verses uh, 1 to 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you be ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are differences of administration but the same Lord. There are diversities of operation, but it is the same God that worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. And to, for to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But all that worketh that one and selfsame Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. So there's just a few things I want to point out here uh, quickly in, in the verses leading up to, these, to, these, uh, to this list. Verse 2 tells us that we as people are all under the un influence and power of something. Okay, in this, in this, to, For this Corinthian church, they were under the influence of dumb idols. That's just what he calls them. Today, same thing. Whether you're willing to admit it or not, there's some force that's propelling you to do what you're doing. It's either driven of the Spirit or it's driven of Satan. It can just be divided into those two camps. Verse 3 basically is saying that um, if we want to say we have the Holy Spirit, then we have to embrace what Jesus said and everything that he taught and stood for. That's really the real test of whether we have the Spirit or not. 
And then in verses uh, 4 through 6, we have a very interesting trilogy laid out here. It says, so in verse 4 it says, we have diversity of gifts. And that word gifts is cherishmata, is, is the um, Greek word. And since we don't read Greek or know what Greek means, it's interesting to me that the root word cheris, if you remember when Ellis had his talk on grace and his prayer meeting topics here at the beginning of this year, he talked about that word. That word is grace. So what, we, what this word cherishmata means is there are diversities of the gifts of God's grace. Okay? Verse 5, it says there are differences of administration. Or you could read it, there are different forms of service. Verse 6, there are differences of operation. Or there's different energies, different levels of energy, different kinds of working. All three of these verses say, but it's the same Spirit. It's the same Lord. It's the same God. You have these, these different ways of looking at it, different ways of working at it, but Paul says the, the Trinity is in it. It's of the Lord. It's of the Spirit. It's of Jesus. It's, it's all the same bundle, if you will. And then verse 7, he emphasizes that the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good of the brotherhood. It says it is given to every man for what? So that the next person sitting beside you knows you have the Spirit? Not at all. It is to profit with all. Or in other words... You could say, if you, if you want to word it in uh, our modern English, you could say, it is given to us to draw us together. That, that's literally what that means. All right, so now let's look at the, at the gifts for a minute. So we, we read over them. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning spirits, tongues, interpretations of tongues. Uh, if you look at that list... Uh, just notice that some seem extraordinary. Others, not so much. Um, a word of wisdom. Okay, a word of wisdom. Versus tongues. Or discerning of spirits versus a gift of healing. It, it seems like we have mundane and then kind of special, you know. Then look down at, there's another list in this, um, in this particular chapter. If you want to go down to verse 28... Um, he gives another list. It says, And God has sent the set in some in the church, first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Again, do you, do you, do you notice the disparity between what seems, wow, you know, um, great versus what seems very mundane? Um, you know, gifts of healing or an apostle or something like this versus helps. What does it mean to just be somebody that's a helper? Someone that can just simply come alongside someone and help someone. Or someone that's good with government, just simply the gift of administration, and so on. In between these two lists, Paul gives the... Um, he enlarges why the diversity is so critical to a good functioning body, and yet he is he's incredibly aware that this very these gifts that are given to different people can be the very thing that causes friction and tension. Um, if you look at verse um, 25, he goes, you know, God put all these things together. He said that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have care one to another. If you read this, and we're not going to take the time, but take the time to read it sometime, you get this feeling that Paul's saying, people, uh, don't let these gifts be the thing that actually tears you apart. It's the thing that's supposed to be drawing us together and making us a better body. Now, now here's, here's an interest, another interesting thing. In verse 31, he says, Covet earnestly the best gifts. And I'm not exactly sure um, what that means until you read the next phrase. He says, And yet I show you a more excellent way. So he's suddenly talking about gifts. Then he says, I'm going to talk about something you should covet more than this. Then you flip the page to chapter 13, and suddenly he switches to fruit. He says, I want you to covet this, this, this love. 
He says, I don't care if I can speak with tongues of men and angels. If I don't have love, it's nothing. I don't care if I can prophesy that the cows come home. If I have love, it profits me nothing. And he just goes down through it. And he lists these different gifts. But he said, above all, I want you to love. And then in chapter 14, and we won't take the time to go through it, but again, um, he starts out the chapter, he goes, follow after charity and desire some spiritual gifts. Really go after charity. And you know, here's some gifts here we're going to talk about. And again, he hits on uh, how the gifts are given to profit the church. Verse 4, he that prophesied, prophesied edifieth the church. Verse 12, seek that ye may excel to edify the church. And so on and so on. The bottom line that I get from these three chapters here in 1 Corinthians is that God gives various gifts, and many of us are not gifted in large ways. All right, But if we focus on this, on just doing or, or, or uh, expressing the gift that we were given, appreciating the gift that our brother was given, encouraging him, you know, it's going to be so much more profitable. So everybody's going to profit so much more from this. All right, let's go to Romans 12 for our second list. Romans 12, and um, it starts, the list starts here in, well, let's, let's read verses 1 to 8. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that he that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministry, or he that teacheth on teaching, he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Okay, so again I want to just look at the list real, real quickly. And then we'll look at the verses surrounding it. So, prophecy. Ministry. Serving. Basically that's, that's the idea of serving in any capacity. Talks about teaching. Gives the uh, gift of exhorting. Or that simply means, in literal terms, just encouraging. How about giving with simplicity? Or giving with generosity? Again, we have the, uh, the ruling with diligence. Or governing well. How about the one showing mercy? Let him show mercy and do it cheerfully. Wow, did you ever think of just the, just the very act of mercy as being a, a gift of the Spirit? So there are several things that stand out uh, in these surrounding verses again. In verses 1 and 2, he again comes, he comes in with this idea that we have a, Christians have a new mind and a new way of thinking about things. And it's different than the world. So he puts that dichotomy in there right away. Verse 3, I think he points out what one of these differences is. He says, I want to make sure you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And I thought of that for a while. Is it not, the, is it not our propensity as people to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think? I mean, I think that's probably a pretty common uh, propensity that the human race deals with. And when you think of it in, outside of the context of a Christian, not only... Um, not only do you do that, but you're proud of it. In other words, you know, in, in a lot of in a lot of life, you know, the the thought process is build yourself up, think think well of yourself. You know, 
you know, your people are trying to push you back. You make sure you push forward. You think you are someone, and you show the world you are someone. That's that's kind of, you know, that's maybe simplistic, but that's somewhat the way um, I, I take it that the the world thinks or whatever. And, and I'll be honest, I uh, and this is just me, but I've never had to. Well, I shouldn't say never. There was one time I had to for a job. I had to I had to fill out a resume, and yeah, I grappled with that. And, and I think what it was is I had this tension that, you know, do I really want to brag myself up? That's kind of what I that's kind of what I grapple with. And I know that's not what what it was about. I, I realize what resumes are for. I get that. But you know, on one hand, it's okay to do that on a resume. But I think Paul's saying here in, in the church, be careful about what you think about yourself. You know, I, I, just, I just wonder if Paul's concern is here that we as people, and even though we're Christians, we have this propensity to over, overestimate our abilities or flaunt our gift or be conceited about it. And then he follows that up. He said, I want you to think soberly. And he said, how you think soberly here is, he says, you think according to the grace. How is this again? But think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now you think about this, but how does that all fit together? And and I'm going to throw this out for your consideration. But I think to think soberly, Paul's calling us to think honestly about uh, the gifts that have been given to us, about our abilities. To, to on, and then on top of that, to honestly analyze our measure of faith. Now, how do you measure faith? Well, I believe in, on one hand you can measure faith in years. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty common theme in the Bible that as a person ages, wisdom should increase. And, it's, and it's, that's okay. It's, it's a measure of faith. I think another measure of faith is... How's your fruit? How's your spirit fruit? How's that coming for you? How's that charity thing working out for you? Um, I really think that's probably the strongest measure of faith. I believe years is one thing. I believe spiritual fruit is probably a better one. I think, again, it's worthy of note that in this list and I'm going to be redundant here, you have some very mundane things and things that wouldn't seem to take any special spiritual endowment to execute. And then you have some that are like, wow, that's, that would be quite a gift, quite a gift to have. And in this list, um, it, it's, it's pretty remarkable to note that nowhere does it say that um, any of these gifts are necessarily a sign of anything. It's, it's not a sign. It's just given for, given for the good of the church. And again, there's another theme that shows up in verse 9. We read that. After he gets through the whole, the whole um, list, just like he did back in 1 Corinthians, he goes, let love be without dissimulation. So he hits that love theme again. Why does he do that? Well, I believe it's because Paul realized that I mean, he's working with people. He's working with all these churches. And he's noticing that there's this propensity to be envious of the other person's gift or calling and not be happy with the way God is moving in, in my life, perhaps. Or maybe getting bogged down in discouragement that I don't really have a gift or you know, it's, it's, it's unnoticed or something like that. Or even worse yet, perhaps, begin to demean your brother's gift or accuse him of flaunting it and in some way discouraging him so that his gift isn't really even used to the max. And so you have this, you have this, um, this problem that can exist all because of something that should be this unifying uh, factor in the brotherhood. Thus, I think, Paul says in verse 10 there, and I'm going to read that in NIV, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. If I can devote myself to my brother with brotherly love, and I can say, your gift is great. I, I appreciate your gift. 
Wow. That, that would, you know, suddenly I have the gift of helps then because I'm helping you. I'm building you up, see. It's a wonderful thing. Let's go to Ephesians 4 for our third list. All right, so Ephesians 4. I'm, uh, I'm not going to read the entire uh, passage here, but it runs from about one, verse 1 through uh, 13. And the gifts is given in verse 11. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All right, so again, I'm amazed and I'm just pointing this out to you how these different passages have such common threads through them. If you notice in verse 3, He says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, he says that, but he prefaces these these gifts of the Spirit with that that, um, instruction. Again, could it be possible that Paul realizes the potential disunity and less than peaceful existence that can come come to bear on a brotherhood whenever we attempt to blend our gifts? I wonder. It seems like this becomes a a common theme. He points out right away in verses 4 and 5, he goes, look, there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one calling, there's one Lord, faith, baptism. And we must realize that the diversity of gifts have a similar goal. It serves one purpose, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one spirit. It's one, even though it's diverse. And then in verses 12 and 13, Again, he says, this diversity of gifts is supposed to do grand things for the church. He says, till we all come to the unity of the faith, and until we experience the knowledge of Jesus and the fullness of Christ. Wow, isn't that wonderful? How that these, how that these different gifts are going to actually blend us and unify us. Verse 14, he says, this whole, this whole matter is going to keep us from false doctrine. Because what maybe I don't see properly, another brother over here with another gift, he's going to see it better. And so by blending this, these perspectives, we get to look at this false doctrine from all directions, and we're less likely to be carried away by false doctrine. All right. And then in... Um, Verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Do I need to say it again? You have the love theme coming out. The NIV says... From Christ, the the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I don't need to say more than that. That's pretty clear. And then in verse 17 to 22, again we have this theme. Be careful. Be careful about thinking about the way the Gentiles do. Be careful about thinking about things the way you thought about things before you were a Christian. Be careful about thinking about things in a worldly perspective. Be careful about that, Paul says. All right, so let's go to 1 Peter 4 for our our last list. This is a very short one. And perhaps... Perhaps it doesn't qualify as a list. I don't know, but it 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 does. I, I think um, I think perhaps it does. At least Peter calls it gifts, anyway. Uh, verse ten and eleven. Like I say, very short. First Peter four ten and eleven. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak. 
Let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability of which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We didn't read it, but you, you do it sometime. The first three verses, again, we have this theme. Don't think like the Gentiles think. Don't think like you did in times past. All right, So get that straight. Then he gives us our gifts, and uh, he talks about a few of them anyway, in uh, verses 10 and 11. Um, gifts to serve each other, and gifts of speaking, ministering, so on. And again, in verse 8, this time it doesn't come after the gifts, but it segues into the gifts. And above all things, this is the ultimate people, the ultimate. Have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity will cover a multitude of sins. We have the love theme again, don't we? Every time we have the list of gifts given, the writer says, here's the list, but I really want you to think about loving each other. And there's good reasons for this. All right. We've read over the four lists. I want to just... um, present a few thoughts and questions for your consideration as we've looked at these lists. So we had four lists and if you looked at those lists and you were paying attention as we were looking at them, none of them were the same. None of those lists were the same. They were all different. Would it be safe to conclude that the gifts that are listed in these four different lists are not exhaustive? And that every generation of the people of God, that God calls to his kingdom, perhaps will have other things that could classify as gifts of the Spirit. Is that possible? And and I'll I'll tell you why I think this. Do you suppose that an evangelist, we have the word evangelist showing up in several verses here. Do Do you suppose the way evangelism was conducted in the apostles' time would be any different than what it's conducted today. I would say perhaps that's true. There's perhaps different avenues that would be used in the in evangelistic methods. Now think of this. How about a person that has the gift of writing? Now that didn't show up on any list, but there are people that are very good with the pen. Would it be wrong to say that if you have the gift of writing, that that is not the gift of the Spirit? I personally think that would that would be a gift of the Spirit, perhaps. Or perhaps a hymn composer. Is, is that a gift? Uh, think how many different gifts would, ha- would fall underneath the gift of helps. Perhaps you're good with handicapped people or old people. Is that a gift? I'm, go- I'm going to suggest perhaps it is. I'm going to suggest that perhaps these lists, because they are so diverse, none of them follow a pattern, and you have some showing up twice, some showing up you know, here and there randomly, I'm going to suggest perhaps that you may possess a gift of the Spirit that doesn't necessarily show up on that list. I think that's very possible. Another reasonable question to ask is, are all the gifts that are listed in these passages still necessarily exercised in the 21st century church? And I'm thinking especially of three, apostles, prophets, and workers of miracles. How about those three? So I'll just give you my comment, and this is again for your consideration. How about apostles? in, In the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, there's three times the word apostle shows up in 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 the various meanings of things. In John 13, 16, when Jesus is talking here, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than the Lord, neither he that is sent, and that word is apostle, neither the apostle greater than he that sent him. In that usage, the very broad term of apostle would be you and me would fit into that category. Apostles. So in that, in that sense, we're all apostles, right? The second time it's used, it's used twice, once in Philippians 2, this is Paul writing, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, and your messenger. Now that word is apostle. It's the same word, apostle. 
So in, in that particular uh, context, it is someone that ministers to somebody else's need. Second Corinthians 8, same thing. He, he refers to Titus and other fellow helpers as messengers. And again, the word is apostle. So perhaps that fits too. Perhaps, um, perhaps we could say that the, the, um, in that setting, a person could be a special messenger of the Lord in some sense or the other. So perhaps that definition would fit. But by far and away, the most common use of the word apostle in the New Testament is people that were unique eyewitnesses to Jesus and his resurrection. By far and away, that's, that's the most common usage. In Luke 6.12, it says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called his disciples, and of them he chose twelve who he named apostles. Okay? Paul, in Galatians 1, says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but of Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. All right, so he refers to himself as an apostle. In Galatians 1.19, uh, Paul refers to James, and he calls him an apostle. All right, so if you, if again, I just want to, I just want to emphasize that by and large, the reference to apostles in the New Testament are eyewitnesses of Jesus. In that sense, you and I are not apostles, and we never will be. It, it isn't, isn't going to happen. And it's interesting to me that in the First Corinthians list, Paul talks about, he, in that last list that you, did you pick up, he goes, first apostles, then prophets, or secondly, prophets, something like that he goes. And it almost seems like perhaps um, it would be safe to assume that the gift of the apostleship had ceased, uh, or, is, or has ceased, I guess you should say, except perhaps the broader meeting that we talked about earlier. Okay, so how about prophets? Again, the understanding of a prophet is very clear. I don't have to explain that to you, but it's one who brings the very words of God to people. Old Testament had many of these prophets. With, with that definition, one would have to conclude that the gift of prophecy, as it's defined that way, is over. In Ephesians 2.20, we read that, it says, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, when you build a building, you, you don't keep laying the foundation and laying the foundation and laying it some more and some more and some more. At some point, the foundation is laid and the structure begins to be built. It says there that the foundation is on the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. If you take that in its context, it would seem to imply that there was a time for prophets, there was a time for apostles, but the foundation is laid. We are now the building that is being fitly framed together. However, there is a secondary meaning of prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 14.3, it says, He that prophesieth speaketh unto men edification, exhortation, and comfort. So with that context, you could say, sure, there's still prophets around. There's still people that can speak edification, exhortation, and comfort. Those people still exist. But I'm going to suggest that primarily, the primary use of prophet, if you take the word as we would understand it, that gift was for a former time. Same thing with workers and miracles. And I want to be careful not to be dogmatic here. This, this thing does not deserve a blunt yes or no. I think our attitude towards working of miracles should be this. A miracle could happen today. It could. Something, I, I could witness a miracle. But I don't necessarily expect that I will. Now, is that being faithless? I, I hope not. That's kind of the attitude I have. It could, but I don't necessarily expect to see one every week. Okay? And I think it's also interesting that the Bible, different times in the Bible, it talks about Oh, I shouldn't. I should, maybe it doesn't talk about it, but we we kind of uh, lay the Bible out into four different segments. So we have the law, we have the prophets, we have Jesus' ministry, and we have the church. And we're not going to delve into it, but think about it for a minute. Where are the miracles clustered in the Bible? 
Well, they're clustered around Moses and, and, and all of that. That was the law. How about the prophets? We have miracles kind of clustered around the prophet, the times of the prophets. Jesus, we had a lot of miracles. And the apostles, we had miracles. It seems that the inception of these different segments of time, you have like clusters of miracles. And you have large segments of the Bible that there's no miracle recorded whatsoever. And you have John the Baptist, who as it is said, and we talked about him the last time, one of the greatest men around, he never did a miracle. Now, if you would have, you would have expected he would have. Herod expected it, but he never did one. I would just say this, just to restate, a miracle could perhaps happen. And I think we have seen evidence in very modern times of miracles. I really believe that. But if you go through life and you never have become a worker of a miracle, it does not mean anything other than that has not been your gift for a certain set time that God decided to give to you. All right, another question, thought I'd like to um, think about. Is it reasonable to believe that many times God uses natural talent and enhances it with spirit-filled unction to really make a powerful tool for his kingdom? So in other words, is the gifts of the Spirit many times an extension of a talent that a person already has? Would it be, would it be wrong to think that way? Well, think, I'm going to give you two examples. Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah, he said, I called you before you were formed in the belly. That's what he told him. He said, so you were called to be a prophet before, before you were even conceived. In Galatians 1.15, Paul says, It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach to the heathen. I believe it's very plausible to think that God creates us with certain natural talent and that he, when a person becomes spirit-filled, that talent is used in superior ways and for better reasons. Now, I want to throw out a caution here. I don't want to imply that God cannot radically change a person and make him be a person that he just was not before. With God, all things are possible. So that's, that's possible. But I don't think it's generally what happens. Okay. How about this situation? Have you ever noticed that sometimes it seems that a person is called to a place of service and it just does not appear like he has the gift. Or perhaps you see certain very, what you would consider gifted people that don't really seem to have a place of service. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? Or is that something you've ever pondered? To be honest, it's something I've pondered. And here is what I'd like to present to you, and I want you to think about this. I think generally speaking, there is some very recognizable talent, such as administration or speaking or so on or so forth, that a person may have, or maybe a writing ability, but that does not necessarily automatically mean that person is a super spiritual person, okay? Now here's the punchline. I think a person that is deeply spiritually spiritual and is obviously developing and maturing spiritual fruit is going to be much more use in the church than a gifted person with very little fruit bearing. That is why Paul comes back and he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. It's not about gifts, friends. It's about love. I believe that there are some very naturally talented people in our churches that might be used mightily of God, but because of the lack of development of spiritual fruit, the gift is very much thwarted. And I believe vice versa is true as well. There are very spiritual people in the kingdom of God that ends up being a helper. A helper. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a helper. I think it... Jesus gave a very good example whenever he gave the, uh, 
there in Matthew where he, there's this group of people in the last day that said, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Have we not cast out devils and done miracles in your name? Jesus said, I, I, you might have, but I don't know who you are. Gifted people that lacked spiritual fruit. I wonder if that's not who that's, that describes. Jesus said, spirituality is gauged by fruit. By your fruit. By their fruit, ye shall know them. Question three. Are we to recognize our gifts personally? And how do we engage them in the body? Frequently in the scripture, God called men to service in his kingdom who least expected it. Moses, Elisha, Amos, many of the disciples, and the list goes on and on. Personally, I believe it is very scriptural and healthy to allow the church brotherhood to recognize and engage the gifts of people. And I think there's very good scriptural precedent for this. I'm going to take the example of Paul real quick in Acts 26. When Paul is given his testimony about his conversion, he says, here's what I heard. Rise, stand to your feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister. That's Jesus talking to Paul. Okay? And we have Paul doing a bit of preaching uh, there shortly after that. Ananias comes to Paul. He receives a sight. It says he immediately went into the synagogue. He preached. He went down to Jerusalem, talked with the disciples, and so on. However, in Acts 13, before Paul is commissioned to be a missionary, it says... In verse 1, Now there was in the church at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, such as Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manian. And it says, As these teachers and prophets ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost suddenly speaks and says, Separate Paul and Barnabas unto me for a work that I have called for them. Then it says, When these teachers and pastors again had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, why did, why did Paul need that, that commissioning, if you will? He had his commissioning back there whenever Jesus said, I have made you a minister to the heathen. And yet he waits for the church's commissioning before he sails off to Timbuktu to become that missionary. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, and he says, The things you've heard among me, thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Take the uh, example of the deacons there in, uh, in Acts when there, there, there came a need for the deacons. What was the instructions the apostles gave? Was it, hey, uh, you folks out there that feel like you have the gift of, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, the gift of love and, you know, handing out food and the Holy Spirit and, you know, if you've you got a little time and you got the gifts, can we just have like seven volunteers to do this? You know, can we get it together? You know, meet over here and we'll, we'll talk to you. It's not the instruction at all. Look out from among you. The instruction was given to the church. The nominations were given. And the charge was given from there. Now, I want you to think about something. I could not think of any example in the New Testament where we had people that were called to use their gift in a very, um, at least in a very um, visible way, where it was not given by the church or right from Jesus himself. Now you think about that. I might be missing something. I'd be interested if you do know of an example of that. That's possible. I missed something here. There's one other thing I want to say, though, and um, just to be clear. I think there are times where there are times we ask for volunteers. It's, it's not wrong to volunteer to have school devotions, by the way. Uh, my bad there. It's not wrong to um, volunteer to um, see summer Bible school. It's not wrong to volunteer to go to Jungle Breezes. It's not wrong. This, this is not wrong. It, it, that, that is right, actually. But I believe it's, we should seek the blessing of the church when we do those kinds of things. Number four, gifts that are given to a person gives them a sense of identity of the, in the church and we must not despise the identity that God gives us through our spiritual gifts. Timothy perhaps had a problem with this and Paul says, Timothy, 
Neglect not, or you could actually word, do not despise the gift that is in thee. Give yourself wholly to it, that your profiting may appear to all. And I don't know where you, you are. Um, some of us struggle with this. Where's my gift? I have so little to offer. You know, I may as well be like the man in the, in the parable. Go bury it in the backyard, have a good time, and whatever. The man in the parable didn't fare so well. Again, I want to stress that the, one of the gifts of the Spirit is simply giving. Just giving. Or being a helper. Or being an encourager. Those are, those are gifts not to be scorned. Those are probably as important. I know they are because they make the list. They are as important as the person that's the prophet or the apostle. They are as important. Because you know why? The prophet and the apostle needs the helper. He needs that. He needs the encouragement. He really does. That's a gift that absolutely cannot be neglected. Exercise your spiritual gift well. And lastly, we need to be aware that although the gifts were given to the church for the perfecting of the saints and for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ, they can just as easily become the very thing that produces schism and misunderstanding. And I've talked about this enough. I won't, I won't pound it much more. But here's why I think that perhaps is. When you look at that diversity of, of gifts... And you have a, a person in that gift, or in that list, you have a person that's an evangelist, and you have a person that's a teacher or a pastor, say. Let's just use that for an example. How he sees life is going to be run through different filters and lenses. The evangelist is going to have a different idea than the pastor over here. Or possibly. I, I shouldn't say they will, but possibly. And so there's going to be that proper tension. That, that tension probably might exist. But if it's bathed in love, and we can say, the evangelist can say to the pastor, you have a point, and the pastor can say to the evangelist, you have a point too. Let's just hone this a little bit, and this is going to be so much better. And suddenly, we have 1 Corinthians 13 just working out right in front of our eyes. We have something very unifying rather than, than schism. In conclusion, number one, I find no indication in the Bible, that gifts are any kind of a sign of spirituality. It's not there. Read through Corinthians. They all want to talk in tongues. Were they a spiritual people? Absolutely not. Paul says you're carnal. That's the kind of church you are. That describes you. You're a carnal church. I also believe if you want to experience the absolute fullness of the Spirit, engage in a spiritual brotherhood. Engage in a spiritual brother. That's where it will be found. And embrace your own gift as God's gift of grace to you. No matter how large, how small, how mundane, how great, that is God's gift to you. Embrace it. And suddenly we're going to have something that is called the habitation of God through the Spirit.